I'm Helen Brockenbach, and I'm the founder of the books that built me. And how delicious to have Sarah Perry, all from my, one of my favourite books of last year, The Essex Serpent, with us. So Sarah's first novel, After Me Comes the Flood, established her as a great new literary talent. And usually with authors, the second novel is the difficult second act. <coughs> and everybody goes, oh, let's get the first one out. Not so with Sarah, because actually the Essex Serpent has almost single-handedly turned a prop made waterstones turn a profit for the first time, <laughs> selling over a hundred thousand copies of hardback, which is actually a really astonishing figure. But not only that, it, the book won the Waterstones uh, Prize last year for the Read the Reader Award, actually, so it's not even Waterstones going, we kind of like this, isn't it nice and shovel? It's the reader saying, boom, this is our favourite. And then it has been nominated for at least five major prizes, so Costa being one, Welcome, which normally only does medical books, which is quite interesting, and Dylan Thomas Prize, and amongst others. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the Essex Serpent and then about the books that have built Sarah, but before we do that, please join me in welcoming Anna Annabelle from the Books that Built Me. So we're going to we're going to keep. They have a lovely pile of books here, which some uh, eagle-eyed people have seen me Instagram as I've been reading. But I want to talk a little bit about the Essex Serpent. What is it do you think that has really um, captivated the public and the critics alike? Um, the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually half serious in the sense that um, I think the cover. From the moment I saw it, encapsulated everything that I hoped the book would be, which is to pay homage to 19th century fiction and to the 19th century itself, but also to do something different with it. Um, and um, actually, when I saw the cover design, I was in the car with my husband and I'd had hiccups for about 40 minutes. And my phone beeped and it was an email from um, Hannah, my publisher, containing a PDF of the cover design and my hiccups disappeared. <laughs> so it's actually magic. Um, as to the rest of it, I wish I knew. Um, I think there may be something in the tone which is warm. I wrote a book about redemption and friendship and a book that I felt I wanted to insist on the power of friendship, the possibility of redemption, uh, the sublime nature of, of landscape in the UK, and I, that may partly account for it, I suspect, but it's a mystery, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I think in part, partly also it's about, it's a historical novel that has some very, very modern themes. I mean, those um, those parallels that we've got, those, those, uh, and the oppositions it sets up between myth and uh, and, uh, and so myth, superstition, and religion, and rationality, and you know, kind of reason and light, you know, science versus superstition, faith versus what's the opposite of faith? You know, like you know, kind of you know, atheism. I mean, a very you know, still very. I mean, there are preoccupations of the late nineteenth century, but they still feel very current. Was that in your head when you were writing? Absolutely. Um, so what I wanted to do was to write a Victorian novel uh, that was a modern Victorian novel, because what interests me about the past is not its difference, but its sameness. It always has. Um, and I don't just mean the recent past, like the late 19th century, but um, I was very privileged to have parents that would take me to historical sites. And what always used to interest me was not grand sculptures, but things like tiny postcards written on pieces of leather from Roman soldiers stationed on Hadrian's Wall complaining about the weather and the food. That, that interests me much more than um, stuff that is a distancing device. And I do think that our ideas of the 19th century are awry. Um, we are Victorians to a certain extent. We have a Victorian school system, our sewers are Victorian, our hospitals are Victorian. When we have our teeth taken out, we have them done under anaesthetic, which was first done in the Victorian age. General anaesthetic is Victorian, anaesthesia during childbirth is Victorian, trades unions are Victorian, health and safety is Victorian, feminism began in the Victorian age. So I wanted to write a book that was a novel about the 19th century, but it's about us, because the best historical fiction is not about the past, it's about the present. Um, this has wildly confused some readers who say, these people are far too modern. Um, 
which just makes me giggle because yes, they were. But it, I mean, that, that's a really interesting point, though, isn't it? Because it's heroin, Cora Seaborn is tremendously modern, but women in eighteen ninety, I'm going to say eighteen ninety five, but that might I might have gone. Am I, am I, am I, I just I don't name the year. Ah, Cunning. something like something, <laughs> something, yeah. something around that. Yeah. Um, is tremendously modern. She's come through a really bad marriage. And as a widow, she's been able to explore the things that she's interested in for the first time. Yeah, and one of the things that really exercises me is what people think of Victorian women as being like. And I began to feel about five or six years ago that I was the victim of a really pernicious confidence trick because I thought of 19th century women as sort of hemming handkerchiefs whilst getting arsenic poisoning from their green wallpaper and crying as their husbands shouted at them because they'd only had 19 children. And, you know, that is actually a silencing of what women in the 19th century were like, where women were training in medicine, where women were engineers and mathematicians and scientists, where they were very active in the trade unions. And I don't just mean wealthy, well-to-do women, although obviously it was more the case. We forget that one of the greatest and most important episodes of industrial action in the 19th century was undertaken by the match girls at Bryant and May. So this was a group of kind of semi-literate working class girls who nonetheless caused a change in the labour laws. So I wanted to write a book that slightly put to bed the idea of this frail and feeble Victorian woman and, and resurrected the, the shade of people like Eleanor Marx and Annie Besant and those Bryant and May girls. Which you do fantastically successfully. <laughs> I mean, it's the strength of the women characters in the book that are so fascinating, and, and actually, even when they are physically very frail, their strength of character carries them through. I wanted to ask you quickly before we move on to this book that I love, um, about the um, about the inspiration. But where did the idea for the book come from? Was it a genesis of many, many months or? I think there's two things. I think partly it is um, a plant growing on a massive pile of compost um, and the composting of, of all of this. But also, um, I'm an Essex girl um, and uh, my husband is also from Essex. And we were driving around the Essex countryside and we passed a sign to a village called Henham on the Mount. And my husband had been reading a book from the 1930s called Companion into Essex, which had a chapter called The Essex Serpent and Some Whales. And he looked at this sign and he said, Henham, have you heard of the Essex Serpent? Which I had not. And in 1669, around the environs of Henham on the Mount, a great beast was seen menacing the local villages. So the Essex Serpent is a real it thing? It is real, yes. And you can go to the British Museum and hold in your hands a document from 1669 warning villagers of what to look out for when they're looking for the Essex Serpent. And the minute he said that, it was a little like someone striking a match in the dark. And I thought, what if it came back? And what if it came back at the end of the 19th century when ideas around natural philosophy and geology and the fossil record were really common currency? I don't just mean very well-educated people. I mean people were wearing shark's teeth as jewellery, rural vicars were running around with butterfly nets. You know, this is a really common thing that was going on. And it, in about 40 minutes, I basically riffed the Essex serpent and the poor man had to listen to me get no, shut up. Okay, so there's a widow and she's got a son... <laughs> And by the time we got home, I had the plot. And what happened next? Amazing. Oh, I did absolutely nothing for 18 months. I'm ever so lazy. Um, but I do believe that not writing is also writing. So there was an enormous amount of staring out of windows and having very lengthy baths. <laughs> in bronze bath oil, which is ruinously expensive, but which now I only need to look at the bottle and I feel like I get ideas. So, And then uh, I sat down to write and nine months later got up and I'd finished. So wow. it was quite an extraordinary <laughs> experience in some way. Well, I think for that... Because when you read the novel, you will realise what an astonishing achievement that is. It feels like the work, I mean, it is the work of a lifetime. I mean, I think that idea of the, the book building inside you, I think, is really interesting to then reread it as I did, based on that idea. Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to mention about the, is about the, um, you've got to stop writing about vicars, but, um, <laughs> about the theme of religion. Because in the late 19th century, of course, the Oxford movement, which was a huge Anglo-Catholic uh, movement, a big uh, drive towards rediscovering one's 
kind of Henrician path, so the Protestant movement of, of, of as conceived by Henry, um, was also massive. But he's not he's not an Anglo-Catholic vicar, is he? No. Um, and one of the things that I most enjoy doing is um, taking a conventional novel trope and then doing something else with it. So um, I decided to have a Victorian vicar who was more rational than an atheist. So he is not high church. He is a very sensible enlightenment vicar who has on his shelves books about the ancient nature of the earth and the fossil record and is familiar with Marx. Uh, but nonetheless has a faith. And the reason I did that is because we have a tendency to think of faith and reason as being a kind of antagonistic binary, right? So you either have faith or you have reason and, and an interest in science. And this is a relatively new idea. We forget that the Enlightenment was driven largely by faith in God to the extent that they believed that if there was an ordered and reasonable God, he must have set the planets in a calculable motion and enabled his creatures us to understand it. So faith in God did not blanket and sort of suppress science, it noted it. Um, and so I wanted to challenge that idea and, and to... And I'm just really interested in, you know, what, what's the difference between faith and madness and, and mysticism? You know, why is it that the woman who runs the fossil, uh, sort of fossil and stone and insect shop in Norwich is a witch? And, you know, and she's a bit silly and she's lovely and I like buying quartz from her and that sort of thing. But, you know, she's a witch. Whereas a man who believes in a triune God has a seat on the House of Lords. You know, what, what's the difference? It, you know, a bishop gets to go beyond that. Yeah, well, it's women bishops now, I suppose. But yeah, this is partly it. So um, I keep writing about vicars. <laughs> they interest me. Which kind of brings us neatly on to the first book. Um, because it's a deeply religious book, it's Fox's... Who has heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody? College. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So for two centuries, this was at least, the, uh, after the King James Bible, the most important book, not just for the elite, but because it has some incredible woodcuts uh, for for everybody. And what it, well, actually, I'm not going to say, tell us what it is, and then, uh, and then we'll start talking about why it's important to you. Um, this is why we had a lead vote in the Brexit election, I'm not even joking. Um, so... Um, I should just preface this with saying that I was brought up in a strict Baptist Protestant sect and my father had a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs from the 17th century which was absolutely enormous and which gave off puffs of leather dust every time you went anywhere near it. And from the age of about six or seven, which is why we're doing this book first, I would crawl into his study and I'd get it out on my knees. I was only little and it would be absolutely massive and I would look at these woodcuts of people being tortured and burned alive. Um, so that's what built me. Thanks, Dad. Um, John Fox wrote a book called The Acts and Monuments of the Church in These Most Perilous Times. I can't remember the exact title. And originally it was an account of Christian martyrs all through the centuries, so from the Roman times up to the Marian martyrs. So in 1555... Mary Tudor um, did a sort of scourge of Protestants and lots of them were burnt alive and lots of them were burnt alive in Essex where I'm from. So it was kind of quite important to the church where I was brought up. And unfortunately, um, the, this book then became politicised because it was very, very convenient for the government post-Reformation to instil in the populace the fear that those dreadful Catholics with their thumbscrews and their and their burning pyres uh, would come for you from the continent. And this book genuinely is fundamental in building the English consciousness. At one point it was recommended that every home should have a copy of the Bible and a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs to educate their children and their servants. And it really has contributed to the, the kind of Little England consciousness, we must preserve ourselves from the continent. Um, but it's also an incredible read. And I now realise that it's not just about faith. It's about political radicals from every class and of every gender. So one of my great heroes is a young woman called Rose Allen, who was burnt alive at the age of 19 for refusing to give up the Bible in English. Now, that sounds like a faith matter, and it is, 
But actually, you have a 19-year-old woman in 1555 refusing to do what she was told by the state. And there's butcher's boys and there's unnamed peasant women in Cornwall who are turned out of their home by their, by their husband and their sons because they insist on their right to freedom of conscience. And this book contains villains and heroes and betrayals and redemption, and it's incredibly gory. So, for example, Bishop Hooper, who was a, a really um, well-loved man, he beat his breast in the flames in his despair. Sorry, this is really gross, sorry. And then his arm dropped off, and then, like, fat poured out the end of his arm. And, sorry. <laughs> and very, very famously, Bishop Cranmer, who effectively wrote the Book of Common Prayer, under torture, recanted his Protestant faith. And then he recanted again and said, hang on, no, definitely a Protestant, going to have to burn me. And famously, when he went into the fire, he held out his right hand that had signed the recantation and burned his right hand first. So it rivals Titus Andronicus and the Duchess of Malfi for, for kind of gore and for heroism and for danger and so on. And it's also kind of... I wrote about it for Slightly Foxed and I said I wouldn't be surprised if there was a copy chained up in the UKIP headquarters and it really wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastically gory. It is. But that spirit of extraordinary rebellion, you know, it takes, it takes a lot to go to the stake and, and those principles are there. But you're, so you're six or seven when you start reading it. Yes. So tell... Um, Tell us a little bit more, actually, about the about the books in your house and your and also about your parents because it would be really it's really interesting to revisit your um, quite extraordinary background. Yeah. I mean, we might save that for a for later on a bit as well, but it's kind of go through. But um, but particularly about when when you when you discovered reading for yourself. Um, so, um, have any of you read Edmund Goss, Father and Son? It's a really incredible book, and it was written at the end of the 19th century about a young man who became an atheist, having been brought up in a very strict Christian home. And he was brought up in the 1860s. And in the 1860s, his upbringing was already embarrassingly old-fashioned. And it is exactly how I was brought up in the 80s and 90s. So I went to a church where I was not allowed to wear trousers or makeup or to have a worldly haircut. Um, there was no television in the house. There were no contemporary books. There were no contemporary magazines. I think my mum got Family Circle, but there would never have been anything like smash hits or anything. No pop music. Our church read only the authorised version and genuinely believed that any modern translation of the Bible was the work of the actual devil. Um, I played the church organ, and the church organ was not electric because that would be the thing into the wedge, and before you knew it, there would be a guitar in the church, and God knows what would come of that. So I had a very, very, very old-fashioned upbringing and very little contemporary culture, which could be tricky when I went to school and people were talking about pop bands that I'd never heard of. How did you and, style it out? Oh, sheer arrogance, I'm afraid. Um, so people would tease me and I would just secretly think to myself, one day I shall be a very great novelist and I won't care that you're taking me. So one day, hopefully, I will be. Um, and, and I genuinely, I, I, I never prized, as a child or as an adult, the praise of the kind of, lo of, of kind of, my peers, that sort of, um, you know, people thinking I was cool or having the right clothes. I, I never cared about any of that. I just cared about whether I was thinking as rigorously and as quickly and reading as deeply as I could. And because that was what was available to me, I didn't care that I had terrible clothes. I'd, I'd read Jane Eyre when I was eight, you know. So, and as far as I was concerned, because I was a dreadful little swap, that made me the coolest girl in the school as opposed to the lamest. Um, so that was what my, my upbringing was like. And, and so the house was full of books, um, Austin and Dickens and Fox and theologians, which I actually did enjoy reading at the time, Calvin, Gill. Um, because on, on, that, on that note, we want to mention the King James Bible. So you, you, know, you talk about the authorised version and every other version being the work of the devil. But the King James Bible is the greatest work of, yep. the book of books, the greatest work yep. of literature in our language. Yep. Um, tell us about how, what your experience of reading, reading that was. 
it was just there and, and I would never have really had a chance to pick it up for fun because we read it all the time. So before every meal, we read aloud from the King James Bible, and obviously at every church service, of which there were many. And every year, there would be two or three memory verse competitions, and we would memorise great tracts of it. Um, and, you know, what an extraordinary thing to have your mind from, honestly, the age of three or four, I would have been reciting the King James Bible. And that's an astonishing t- thing to do. I mean, I... I suppose nowadays people would consider it a form of child abuse, but my God, what a way to develop someone's vocabulary, you know? (laughs) Um, And I think that's had a real impact on the way I write, because the King James Bible wasn't written in colloquial language. It was written to be easy to memorise for people who couldn't read. So it was written to be read aloud and remembered, and so it has a wonderful cadence and um, is actually extremely easy to memorise. I've forgotten most of it now. Is that when you when you start rereading it actually with a, with a literary mind or rather than a you know I guess a, a more religious mind it's quite it is, it's an astonishing book of yeah. prose it's beautiful yeah. beautiful beautiful and the common prayer common prayers common prayers yeah. yeah um so I'm I think we should we should give <laughs> pass pass on the on this gory love yes who, who wants to, uh, this uh, who's ready for the gory, gory nastiness <laughs> of um, <laughs> thank you. So is it so of, of of that? What is it that you that you feel you've taken forward with you from foxes? Is it that spirit of rebellion, or is it the uh, the power of looking at the power of the spirit? Um, I think numerous things actually. I think a willingness to look at violence and but to treat it in a way that is not prurient. So you would think that. Fox is prurient because it is these ghastly descriptions of torment visited on on each other. But actually it's always done in a way which is fundamentally rather exhilarating because behind it all is the triumph of the human spirit. And, And I think that's something that's really important for a writer to learn is how to depict humanity at its not best and occasionally at its worst, but without doing it in a kind of snickering, unpleasant and prurient way. And it really had a very profound effect on me in thinking of, is there something I would die for? And if there isn't, perhaps there ought to be. And I can remember having a terrific drunken row with my best friend because I accused him of not having anything that he would die for. (laughs) I felt that this was evidence of an amoral and an impoverished intellect and that he should really think of something for which he would be prepared to be burned at the stake. But I've had a lot to drink, so... (laughs) I'm going to ask you the question of what, <laughs> what you would die for. It's without without sixteen bottles of wine inside you. It's a bit there. unfair. Um, but we'll come on to book two, which is Tess the Dumbbells. Who has read Tess the Dumbbells? Everybody knows Tess the Dumbbells. One of my favourite books. Tell us why it's yours. Um, this book is incredibly dear to me because it it brings to mind my father. My father was um, born in one of those sort of slums in South London that got torn down after the war, and he left school at 14. Um, and he eventually sat um, A-level science exams from what he'd learnt by um, being a lab assistant and kind of overhearing stuff. So this incredible man ended up getting a physics degree. Very, very devout, obviously. And he was very proud that I was so precocious, and he really encouraged it. He would take me out of school to go to the proms. Um, He would show me these extraordinary ancient books that he had in his collection. And when I was 10, he bought me a copy of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Now, my father's dyslexic, and the only thing he reads is intense Reformation theologians from, like, the 16th century. He doesn't read novels. I love it. but he'd heard of this book on the radio, I think, and he felt that I would like Hardy, and it didn't occur to him that perhaps it might be both above and uh, slightly beneath a 10-year-old um, to read. And, and I just read it. There's something really liberating about not telling children that books aren't for them. No one ever told me that a book wasn't for me because of my age. They might have taken it away because it was ungodly, but not because it was too old for me. And so I read Tess of the D'Urbervilles very, very young. Um, I read Jane Eyre when I was eight, but I was too young to, to understand it. And I rate Tess of the D'Urbervilles as being the first adult book that I read and actually kind of properly read and appreciated. And 
it, the nature writing, the character of Tess, the hubris and folly of her father, the perfidy of Alec, everything about it I just find exquisite. And I later discovered when I was at university that it was subtitled A Pure Woman when it eventually came out. And people were appalled and they said, you can't call Tess a pure woman. You just can't have that as a subtitle because obviously she was a fallen woman. Um, and actually, I think that Hardy really struck on the nature of morality and the nature of good at a time when you could so easily be compromised by your sexual behaviour. And I was also too young to understand that maybe a novelist might hang the titular character. Sorry for anyone that's not read it. <laughs> and I was just devastated because it broke every rule that I thought I understood in fiction. And it showed me what a novel can achieve, which is that it can shatter you for, you know, weeks afterwards. And I can still see the... Remember there's the black flag flying above the prison wall that shows that she's been hanged. And I still feel a little sick when I think about it because I was only 10 and I thought that she would get out and, you know, everything would be okay. Yeah, and she wasn't. So, But I don't find that bleak. I find um, Hardy is expert in satisfying tragedy, mm. in the way that the Greeks understood that something can have a tragic end and it can be tragic but not sad and that those are two slightly different things. So now I understand that, that her end was tragic and heroic and that that's kind of cathartic. Didn't understand that as a 10-year-old. was just absolutely broken. <laughs> Did you cry? Yeah, I would buckets. <laughs> Sorry, probably, probably slightly <laughs> yeah, microphone. Buckets. Microphone. <laughs> so what, I mean, what, and what else were you, were you, you, you are Matilda, aren't you? Who's read Matilda? Sorry, Bob Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the child that goes to the library and reads every single book in it. I love her, she's yeah. my favourite. Yeah. Um, so what else were you? What else were you reading? What um, what 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 else had an impact on your? Um... Absolutely anything, anything that came my way, I would read it. So I would go up into the loft where my dad kept his collection of. of the, I, I know where you think this is going, but actually I'm going to say leatherbound complete Shakespeare, and and would read Shakespeare. And then I would go under my sister's bed and get out her Dilly Cooper. And then I would go on a holiday and get a Desmond Bagley novel in a second-hand shop. And then I would read kind of three or four Agatha Christie's in a row. And then I would read all of Bronte. And I am still utterly indiscriminate in my reading. I have no time or patience for reading as kind of status signalling. Totally unimpressed with people walking around with infinite jest under them. I mean, if they really enjoy it, obviously, but I, and I have a really awful habit of kind of talking about how much I read Terry Pratchett when I'm in the company of literary snobs, because I, and so that indiscriminate reading really stuck with me until I did my MA, and then I realised that people were using books to show the kind of person they are, and I was really taken aback, and thought, hang on a second, am I supposed to be using books like a handbag or a piece of jewellery to show people what I'm made of? And it really spoilt my reading for quite a few years because I felt slightly ashamed that I'd read most of the Alistair McLean novels. <laughs> um, yeah, so just indiscriminate, basically. I'm with you on that. When I graduated, I read Barbara Cartman for a whole year. And we had that conversation last night actually about Susan Howitch versus oh, um, yeah. who likes uh, Susan Howitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 from the start, right? Yeah. Just blissful. Yeah. Uh, versus yeah. Anthony Pohl. Yeah. And Anthony Pohl has got loads of kudos. Yeah. And it's just this big rambling saga about a million novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the uh, and uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard and Susan Howard don't. So oh, I'm with you on the no-brow. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing that really struck me re having a reread of Tess was was that um, was the nature writing in your in your in your book. I mean the descriptions of the, the Fata Morgana, for example, yeah. those phenomena in and the coastline. Um, and I, I just wanted to if you if you wanted to say a little bit about how you how you feel about landscape. I mean Hardy's Dorset is so vivid, and your Essex is, I've never been, I've been to Essex once, but it just feels to me like this amazing paradise of long, <laughs> you know, offends a kind of long, long coastline. Um, I think very often writers are not themselves entirely aware of how they write and of their tropes, because one tries to write with integrity, 
And that means not constantly checking yourself for what you've written and, and making sure that you're the kind of person, the kind of writer that you think you are, but just writing as seems natural. And so it wasn't until I'd finished The Essex Serpent and looked at The Essex Serpent and After Me Comes the Flood and realised how much attention I paid them to the natural world. Um, I, this is really pretentious and I'm very sorry about this, but I'm weirdly over-affected by my surroundings. When I was a child, occasionally my mum would drive me home from school in Chelmsford, and there was a part of Chelmsford where there was a flyover that was intended to be temporary and has had been left there. So it was incredibly sort of dilapidated and awful with stained concrete, and it went over an industrial estate. And my spirits would just sink and could not be revived. And so I would close my eyes when I saw the flyover coming and my mum would tell me when I could open them again. <laughs> and it's very unlike my mum to indulge me, so I was quite glad that she did. And I, I just feel out of sorts and out of place anywhere but in the East of England countryside. So um, I recently had an amazing holiday on a wonderful island in the Indian Ocean. It was all right, I suppose. <laughs> but there was no mist, and there was no seagrass, and there were no egrets, and everything was wrong. I just felt so out of place. Um, and when I go up to the Scottish Highlands, it's nice, you know? There's a lot of mountains, and it makes me feel a bit hemmed in, and the sky's small. So <laughs> I'm just very oversensitive to surroundings, and I think that I think a good book the surroundings in a good book will be like a character. And so with both books, I wanted to create a setting which would act on the characters as much as any other character, make them behave in certain ways, make them feel certain things. And I think if you look carefully, you can find the most extraordinary natural magic in a small square of land, uncultivated on the edge of some suburb, um, and I don't really feel that in cities so much, so. You and Harvey both. But speaking of kind of those high-low divisions of books, we're going to talk about your third book now, I Capture the Castle, Daily Smith. Who loves this book? If you, if you don't, if you haven't read it, you can't love it. If you have read it, you can't not love it. I mean, it's impossible not to love it. Um, so I just want to—I want—I want to know all about why you love it. Um, I capture the castle is my favourite book um, by a not insignificant margin. And if someone reads it, if you lend it to someone and they read it and they don't like it, just call the police because it's um, a dangerous person to have just wandering freely around the streets. It's it's perfect. So they have no soul. They have no soul. They probably don't have a reflection check. <laughs> um, this was wonderfully described by a critic at the time as being about a girl poised between childhood and adultery. And it is a description of somebody turning from a girl into a woman with the pain and the exhilaration and the confusion that that entails, but done comically and humanely and exquisitely and conjuring up a world that anybody would want to live in. So the, uh, to briefly summarise, Cassandra Mortmain is the narrator and these are her diaries and the first part of the book is called The Three Penny Book, I think, and then there's The Shilling Book and the books get more expensive and the book ends, slam the book shut, or one of the parts ends, slam the book shut. And it's a perfect piece of characterisation. I find it impossible to think that Cassandra Mortmain didn't exist. It's just, I just, it's a masterpiece of empathy to the extent of allowing a, a human being to, to exist entirely who never did. You know, how Dodie Smith did it, I don't know. And it's just, it's just perfect. It should be available on the NHS. I've bought so many copies and I just give them out to people all the time um, with the threat that I'll call the police if they don't love it. Um, it's just, it, I've, I've run out. This is the one that I find hardest to talk about because I love it so much. You can probably tell. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask, do so we have all, all that, all that gorgeousness? There's two sisters and they're impoverished, aren't they? And they're kind of living in this very grand castle and they're very bohemian. Their stepmother is 
wandering around, you know, dancing naked on the, you know, in the, all the, in the castle rooms, all that kind of stuff. And the the two sisters in want of a in want of husbands. Yeah. So there's a little bit of pride and prejudice about it. The one I wanted, the one, it was my burning question was the central, uh, well, not central figure, but the figure of her father, Cassandra's father, is a writer who's written a piece called, is it called Jacob Jacob Wrestling? Jacob Wrestling, yeah. And it's a kind of post Finnegan's Wake or kind of like current, you know, Finnegan's Wake type impossible modernist novel and was enormously critically successful and he's now got writer's block. And I thought we might just have a little chat about writer's block <laughs> and the process and what happens when you can't write your book. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I never quite know what people mean by writer's block and consequently never quite know whether I have it. I have maybe six or seven novels backed up in my head like buses um, and I'm desperate to write them and they won't stop coming and I think one of the reasons I must write is because the alternative is restraints in a padded cell somewhere and I just end up inhabited by people and, and plots and it wildly excited by them. My experience of writing the book that I'm writing now is very different from writing The Essex Serpent. Writing The Essex Serpent was an act of love, really. Um, it was such a joy to do, and I would occasionally, this is very wrong to admit this, I'm sorry, it's so uncool, but I would occasionally just laugh with delight at thinking of the possibility of thrilling a reader and giving the reader pleasure. And then I would carry on bashing away and thinking you weren't expecting that that way. Um, I'm, it's a very different experience writing it now. Um, partly because the book's just appalling. <laughs> I don't mean in quality, although possibly, but it's much darker. And so I did feel blocked for a time. And I was quite unwell last year and I couldn't even read. And so writing was, of course, completely off the cards. And reading it now, reading I Capture the Castle now, Mort Main's experience writing does strike a chord that it didn't before. There's an amazing bit where um, he just locks himself in a tower doing cryptic crosswords and just filling in these crossword puzzles. And eventually, of course, it turns out that this is the basis for some blistering postmodernist masterpiece that's going to make them all very wealthy. Be nice if that <laughs> turned out to be the case here and see. It's the, I mean, it's, on every level, it's brilliant. It's, it's the ultimate comfort read. Yeah. But we're going to, so we're going to come on to a very different kind of book. Yes, this is Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Um, anyone? Has anyone read it? So again, I came by this partly via my father, who again wouldn't have read it himself. Um, but um, in the 80s, and I think even in the early 90s, my father, who was a material scientist, went to go and do some work in a factory in what was then communist Yugoslavia. It was communist, wasn't it? Yes. Um, before the, the war. And um, he began to be really interested in communist dissident writers. And our church had an interest in it as well, because there was a period when I was very young when Bibles were not permitted in quite a few communist countries. And so we supported charities that translated the Bible into Russian and smuggled it in. Um, and I can remember as a kid helping smuggle some Gospels of John into, I think, Romania by popping them into those shoeboxes. This is really terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> we did that. We, we used to um, put pennies in a box at school to sit to buy Bibles, for, yeah. and they, they would go. The gospel would go in somebody's shoe. Yes, actually, that's right. And they would yeah, be yeah. smuggled into Russia in yeah. a shoe. Yeah. The Cold War is feels like forever away. Yeah, but, that but, was but, but we're ever so young, so it obviously wasn't. Um, <laughs> and so um, my dad began to be interested in this stuff, and he, I don't know how he heard about One Day in the Life of the Ivan Denisovich, but I would have been about 13 or 14 when I first heard of it. And then when I won a GCSE English prize, I got asked what books I would like, and I asked for this. So I was about 15 when I read it, possibly 16. And it's just astonishing. I'm, I will always be very interested in Prisoners of Conscience. So this is where, like, Fox, the, the first book that built me is building the other books that built me. And um, it's the story of a man who um, is accused in the way that people in communist countries often were of, of um, spying and ends up in a labour camp. And Solzhenitsyn himself was, of course, um, in a gulag um, and wrote an enormous amount about all of this. But what characterises this 
is a combination of an unflinching look at man's inhumanity to man, together with an unshakable belief in mankind's fundamental goodness. And so one moment you're reading about, for example, a punishment administered in a cell, and the next minute you realise that this gang of workmen pulled away from their family and living for 10 years in the most appalling conditions have made a new family for themselves. And I really think that this is what I prize in literature above everything else, is doing both of them, looking at humanity at its worst, while never for a minute losing your belief in grace and in nobility. And it really, to, to read it at sort of 14 or 15 was really formative in the sense of what literature could do in like half an inch of pages. Um, I then went on to read things like Cancer Ward, which sounds really ghastly and should be, and it's an, a, a much bigger book and an account of a cancer ward in communist Russia in poverty and all the rest of it. But once again, Solzhenitsyn manages to conjure up the courage and the propensity to love and the propensity to build family groups in, in the most unprepossessing circumstances. I lent it to my nephew, and he never gave it back and never read it, which is the cardinal, <laughs> cardinal sin. Boys and books. <laughs> yeah. Some good exceptions. He won't read it if it doesn't have a dragon in at the moment, which I find very disappointing. <laughs> my son is illiterate in several languages, which is <laughs> Anyway, I feel bad. I feel like I've made him anti-books by, by being so obsessed yeah, by them. I've put yeah. him off. But it's that. What I wanted to say about that, about this is that that's something that comes out so strong. We talked a little bit about those 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 that you think of religion versus uh, science are binaries. And they're not. And one of the things that Essex Serpent does say, well, it's really trouble. It's all about the ambiguities. It's about the questions. And I wondered what it, what questions you felt you had at the at the end of a book that feels like it asks more questions than it answers. Um, I that's what I wanted to do. And I don't have answers, but I have an awful lot of questions. And I I resolved that since I cannot answer any of these questions for myself, I certainly can't do it in my books for my readers. But if if on reading it one is more inclined to interrogate one's opinion on people of faith or people of science, then that's sort of job done, I think. I, re I just have no patience at all for people who think in that binary way. I find it rather repellent, actually. Um, a fixity of view worries me. Um, I think it shows a real kind of poverty of imagination, poverty of empathy, poverty of learning. And what worries me about the way the world is developing now is that people become more and more entrenched in their position. So to quote a very recent example that I only know about because of Twitter, which I very occasionally go on, um, Milo, this um, ghastly racist homophobic, misogynist person, transphobic person, um, has lost his book deal with Simon and & Schuster. And um, a journalist called Laurie Penny has written about him quite a lot and written about his followers. And she made the cardinal error of not depicting them all as having actual horns and tails. And of course, he's now being cast out and, and sort of accused of befriending them. And I thought, if we really reached a stage where we can only talk about our foes and our opponents as if they are born wicked and born absent of any morals and absent of any empathy, it's really troubling. And when liberal, left-leaning academic people are doing it, that's when we want to start getting a bit troubled. So most of all, I want to write along the line. And I don't think that means writing without a firm principle of morality. And I don't think it means writing without a grasp of the difference between good and evil. But it does mean understanding that there's not 50% of the world born wicked, and they're the people who disagree with you, and 50% are born virtuous. And would you believe those are the people who agree with everything you say? And we're getting more and more entrenched, I think. But it that, that feels like a, such a throwback, this idea of the elect and the damned, doesn't it? So, whereas a book like um, One Day in the Life of Eden Denisovich shows that even within something so totalitarian, the humanity is still there. Yeah. So maybe that when we're feeling incredibly gloomy about the world we're living in, that's that's yeah. the lesson to remember, that actually humanity triumphs. Yeah. Um, we should... Yes. Who hasn't? Is the one of the most cheerful. <laughs> but it is. It is a cheerful. It is quite cheerful. <laughs> you know, they and that triumph of the human spirit. <laughs>
There we are. I can pass that actually. It is really, it's a really extraordinary book. I hadn't read it actually, and I feel it kind of slightly changed me. Good. Oh, I'm so pleased. Another book that changed me, and I know, I know, changed you is, I mean, Hilary Mantel's Giving Up the Ghost. It's her memoir. Has any who's read? Her, this her memoir. Who's read? I mean, who's read? I mean, who's read uh, other Hilary Mantel? So let's let's. Talk. I was hearing your <laughs> voice every time <laughs> I, I read a page. Um, let it be. Let the record show, Your Honour, that some of us loved Hilary Mantel years before Wolf Hall. When and I know this seems extraordinary. She was kind of a writer's writer or a deep reader's writer. Um, I read Giving Up the Ghost in 2009, when I was, I think 2009, might be 2010, um, when I was working, my memory's awful, I read it some time ago, that's as far as I'm prepared to go, when I was working at the Council of the Inns of Court, so during my PhD I, I managed a committee of barristers and judges and worked in Lincoln's Inn and Middle Temple in those wonderful buildings, and I started reading this in my lunch hour, I think I was about halfway through, and I got that much to go and had to go back to work. So I claimed I had an upset stomach, <laughs> locked myself in the lavatory, <laughs> finished reading it, cried for about 45 minutes, went back to my desk and composed three A4 sides of fan mail and sent them to Hilary Mantel. Um, and a few, a few months later, she wrote back and... Um, on, she sealed the envelope with one of those pre-printed address labels and it had a little black cat on it. <laughs> and she was extraordinarily gracious. Um, this book means so much to me and Hilary Mantel means so much to me and it means more to me now than it did when I first read it. Um, it has in keeping with I Capture the Castle the ability to grow up with you and to be a companion. Um, in her memoir, she recounts being brought up in a not wholly happy Catholic home. And when she was seven, she saw the devil in the back of the garden. And her account of meeting the devil is one of the most chilling things I've ever read. She was playing in the kitchen and her mother was cooking and the door was open. She decided to go out into the garden and she was playing in the grass and in the bushes and she looked down towards the end of the garden and, as it were, a great swarm of flies coalesced into a kind of darkness. And all at once, at the age of seven, she was struck with the sense of sin and evil and of her own mortality. And it was like a kind of lapsarian experience. She went out into the garden, an innocent child, and she came back forever changed. And it's never left her. And the way she accounts it, you know, you, you're not quite sure whether she actually thinks she saw the devil or whether the genius that is Hilary Mantel has come up with a wonderful way of explaining what happens when you grow up and you realise that the world is not the, the sunny place you think it is. She also had terrible health problems, which are recounted without flinching, without self-pity, but also with a kind of righteous indignation of, at what was done to her. She doesn't have children, and there's an extraordinary scene where she says she will always be followed around by the footsteps of the children that she didn't have. And then there's also the account of her growing as a, growing into being a writer and, and everything that made her write. And I was quite unwell last year, and I don't have children. And reading it now, it was one of the few books that I was able to turn to for comfort because she'd suffered too. She'd had pain, and she'd been had her identity fundamentally altered by going from a well person to a sick person and yet she had continued to do everything that she did and I'm I, can you tell a bit obsessed <laughs> and I, I just I can't ever meet her because I'll just cry and it will be really embarrassing and I just keep her before me as an example of someone who continues to get better so you can trace what was already a fairly weighty intellect just getting deeper and sharper and more full of grace, but more full of anger with everything that she writes. So she's she's kind of the my idol, really. Um, and this book, oddly enough, encapsulates it more than her novels for me. It does, it does. It's odd. I don't. 
it's hard, maybe because it's so unflinching and it's because you know it's true, mm. perhaps. Yeah. Um, and she engages you in a, a real dialogue about what it means to be a writer. I mean, all those, those things that she says about writing, I wonder if they, how they were talking to you, whether that became, whether that's a, is that, um, I can't, I don't know, a millstone in a way because she's so amazing. Um. It, it's like, it can be a, both a millstone and a touchstone. Um, so I can remember meeting with my agent um, um, a, a while back and going, how do I get better? I'm not good enough. I have to get better. I have to get better. This isn't enough. And one of the reasons I was feeling like that was because I've been reading Mantell's essay, Ink in the Blood, readily available online, and it's an account of a terrible wound and surgery that she had. Um, it's absolutely astonishing. And it's really interesting for an artist to just know when they're bettered. It's really humbling and it's really exhilarating and it's very common for me. And it's, it's interesting because after a bit you start to know who your peers are, you know, and I think it's the same in every job, whether you're a surgeon or a lawyer or an artist or a teacher, whatever you do, you kind of know the people who have similar skills to you and who work in a similar way to you. And you know the people who, you know, they could they could learn if they want to. And then you know all of those people and you are as far from them as the East is from the West. And and when I read her work, part of me feels full of joy at what the human mind can do and what literature can do. And part of me thinks I'm never going anywhere near my laptop ever again because there's no point. Um, so she's kind of, she's a kind of God figure in that sense, in that she's kind of remonstrating and comforting at the same time. Maybe she, maybe she is God. I mean, there's no evidence to the contrary that I've ever come across. The late great Dr. Anthony Clare described uh, writers write authors as being as being the last sec, you know great secular priests. Yes. <laughs> so she is. She she's is mine. High, she's your high priestess yeah. of writing. Um, I feel. I feel like. Oh, that was quite. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really amazing. It is. It is really extraordinary. Her ability to conjure the mind of a child is mm. only Joyce. I think has done it mm. that successfully. I mean, you know, she doesn't use the language like he does, but. You are there yeah, in absolutely. her horrible school. Um, last book. Sorry. Um, <laughs> let's have 17 more books and keep people talking. <laughs> um, now this is, so, so Silence, you, has anybody read? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also going to say it's I have a support actually, group <laughs> for the people who've read it afterwards, yeah. Um, there was a very recent film, Martha Scorsese, it's a um, Tell us a little bit about what, it, what it's about, about its narrative, and then um, we'll talk about why it's your last book. Um, Shusako Endo is one of the very few Christian Japanese writers, um, and he wrote this in, I think, 1990, not 100% sure, and it's a historical novel set in Japan at a time when Christianity was outlawed with extreme prejudice. Um, you are not permitted to worship a Christian god. And the premise is that in a slightly kind of Conradian way, a Jesuit priest, a very respected and well-loved and senior Jesuit priest is missing in Japan, Portuguese missionary. And so two young Jesuit priests are sent to find him and bring him back. And the whole novel centres on the idea of apostasy and of what it means to renege on your faith and to reject your beliefs. And I think for many, many people now, the idea that this could be something beyond imagination and like Fox, you know, something for which you would willingly suffer is just ludicrous because we're a secular nation and the vast majority of people, if they have a faith, would probably not pursue it to such an end. <coughs> Endo makes it seem as if the act of apostasy, of merely saying, I am not a Christian, is a is a fraction it fracturing away of everything that makes you you of every nobility of every bit of grace of every bit of courage just draining away and leaving you nothing leaving you lost of your humanity and what they do is it's a very simple act the Japanese say don't worry about it we don't really care what you think we just want you to pretend that you've apostatized and so they have an image of the face of Christ all you have to do is stand on it 
and in doing so you've demonstrated that you're apostate. So these two priests go in search of the missing priest and they find communities of Christians who have been converted and are worshipping in the countryside and the penalty if they're caught is death and torture in the most atrocious and harrowing ways. And so it brings up these questions, you know, is a priest's duty to spread the gospel so important that if illiterate peasants are then led to be tortured and killed for the faith that they've only just acquired because they've been converted by the missionary, are those missionaries actually doing something very wicked? And it's called silence because it's about the silence of God. And all the way through the book, the priests ask for God to show himself. And there is always silence. Always. And for me, I, I was a a very devout Christian until my mid-twenties, and I remain a Christian now, but an extremely bad one, and a very undevout one who never goes near a church. Um, <laughs> I read this, I finished reading it in Liverpool Street Station, and it left me so distressed that some strangers came and asked if I was okay. Because it, it, it just, it's about the silence of God, and it's about believing all your life that there is some force for good and that your life is ordered and that it's worth sacrificing everything you have, including your life. But ultimately, there's just silence. It's just, it's horrendous. I don't know why I'm talking about it, really. Oh, and the other thing is, um, we were talking about violence and terrible things being reported in a gracious and a humane and a, and a moral way. And that's what this book does. Um, there's a scene of torture where you never see anything. There is a sound, and this sound is heard for ages through this chapter, and then in one sentence you realise what the sound is, and it is one of the most utterly appalling things I've ever read, but done without glee, and done without joy, and done without this fashion that we have nowadays for kind of torture porn in literature. Isn't it awful? Isn't it ghastly? Didn't they suffer? Do you love it? Didn't they suffer? It's so awful. It's not like that. It's done in sort of the exact opposite way. And I only read it three years ago, and I think it's the last book I read that I felt kind of contributed to who, to who I am. Nothing since then has kind of built me, so to speak. I haven't sold it to you. <laughs> so, I mean, the question—the question I had about it was: when you hear the, when your faith, your faith in yourself is challenged, because that's what it is. It's not, you know, it's not. It's what's challenged with the priests is, the, is their sense of who who they who they are, what makes them them. Their, you know, their their core belief to go and spread the word of God. Is challenged because it could, you know, are they doing the greatest bit? Well, how do you, how do you keep going when you most doubt yourself? And I guess that's having been so ill last year. How do you keep going when you doubt that you can, that you've got the physical courage to go on? I mean, I don't want to compare like you know people who make a missionary being tortured in Japan terribly with you know the act of writing. But there is a kind of you know, there is a there is a difficulty of a creative process, and there is a. Um, a point at which you're in the long dark teeth of the soul and you question who you are yeah. and what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I've been through that a lot recently, just with the, the absolute state of the world today. I mean, it just... I had a real crisis about a month ago and was very distressed, actually. And, you know, I'm not an extremely clever person, but I'm fairly bright, and I nearly became a barrister. And I was suddenly struck, I'd been reading about the, I can't pronounce it, but the prison in Syria that's been hanging people in the tens of thousands. And I made the mistake of reading an Amnesty International report on it. And I was immediately, utterly disgusted with my books. Just disgusted. And I described it as feeling like I stood whistling under the windows of dying men. The most appalling outrages are being committed right now while I sit drinking a glass of Bollinger. And I could have been a lawyer. I could have worked in human rights. I could have done something useful. And I chose to tell stories. And as you can tell, I'm actually quite angry about it. And it's taken me a long time to come to terms with the fact that there is a reason why totalitarian authorities kill the artists and the intellectuals along with the political movers. Because it matters. It does matter that we have the power of imagination. It does matter 
that literature brings about empathy. It does matter that there is always beauty, even when Solzhenitsyn is writing about someone being glad that they found a fisheye in their ball of gruel because it was a bit of extra protein. There is always humour. Um, and I think that's what literature can do. And I'm still, I'm still slightly angry with myself for not doing something more useful with my time. But I'm coming round to the idea that it does matter to be an artist. And, and if I can carry on convincing myself that it matters, then I'll, I'll carry on writing. And I must have convinced myself because I've been writing. So. <laughs> but it's, it is, it's really difficult to think, who am I? You know, am, I'm taking up space and am I using it wisely? And it's just a really difficult question, I think. But I think the, the thing about the books that you've chosen have been Fox and Silence and the Sultanates in particularly is that they're very potent ways of saying how important it is to tell those stories and to, in whatever way you're doing it, to bear, to bear witness. Yes. And even if it doesn't feel terribly um, obvious in the way you're bearing witness, doesn't it doesn't need to be, you, know, you don't need to be talking about being in the labour camp, you need to be <laughs> yeah. in the labour camp to yeah. tell the stories that touch people and remind us of our humanity. Yeah. Um, and novels do that beyond any other art yeah, form, yeah. I think. Um, so I, fortunately, we've got no more time. So we um, when you said to those, or in your head, you said to all the girls you were at school with who were, you know, running around the copy smash hits in there. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm so on Ross Records. I'm old those old venues. I'm trying to remember what we've been in, in the hip road at the time on top of the pops. The peak of when you were going, yeah, but well, you know what? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be an author. So Yahoo sucks. I think we say Yahoo sucks. You're right. Hurrah for that. And um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Books That Built Me. You can find out more on the website, thebookstatbuiltme.co.uk, or on Facebook. And I'd like to thank the lovely sponsors of The Books That Built Me, Champagne Bollinger, Prestat Chocolate, and Tatler.